I've gotten very frustrated with the government. I've tried several times, both at various states and also at the federal level, and I've been very depressed and frustrated every time I've tried. It's really been a hard, a hard walk. I mean, it's just so difficult to get the government. They've been so paid off for so long. They so much want to believe that it's safe, you know, and and they think we can't grow food without it. They really think it's essential in the U.S. anyway. But we've got a, a growing population of people who are concerned about their children's health, especially mothers looking at their child with autism or ADHD or even obesity, diabetes. I mean, all these things. Type one diabetes is becoming an epidemic, despite the fact that it's a genetic disease. There's good evidence from research that. What I predict would be happening is happening. For example, succinate dehydrogenase, which is a super important uh, enzyme in the mitochondria. And it's been shown in multiple studies to be suppressed by glyphosate. The next generation is prepared in the female child. And then meanwhile, it's getting exposed to these toxins the mother's uh, exposing herself to. They get in there and that germline uh, reacts to it with epigenetic effects like methylation, you know, different methylation pathways. There's ways in which it can remember, oh, I had this nasty exposure. And then that ends up changing the policy of how of how that child grows you know and and then going all the way to the next generation is still there as a memory this is decentralized radio i'm tristan and i'm ryan the goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life we will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Today, we have Dr. Stephanie Seneff on the line. Stephanie, how's it going? I'm really excited for this conversation. It's been a few weeks in in the making. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. So Stephanie is a senior research scientist at MIT and has quite a diverse background. And that's why I'm so excited for this conversation. So started in biophysics with a degree and then electrical engineering. And then I believe some computer science intertwined there as well. And then really been focused on biology as of late. So I guess maybe starting there is is how did you... You know, what was your thought process going through all these different degree programs and then getting into biology kind of later on as the deep focus in life? Yeah, well, biology was my original love, and I was really thrilled to be at MIT and get a degree. Actually, I spent a year in the graduate program in biology, but I found that I was absolutely terrible in the biology lab. I couldn't (laughs) couldn't deal with it. I thought I really made a huge mistake here. So I I dropped out, and I worked for 10 years uh, in computers. At that time, you could get a job writing computer code without any any um, experience because there was nobody who had experience. It was so early. Um, and then I managed, I, I was taking courses part-time and, and switching over to computer science, electrical engineering, and eventually got got into the graduate school, which is kind of amazing to go from biology to computer science, you know, and electrical engineering and worked my way through that and had, you know, had a bunch of kids along the way too. So I ended up with four kids by the time I graduated, got my PhD. So it was a rough ride, but uh, my husband was very supportive and um, and then I got uh, started working at MIT, and I've never left. So it's been my entire career. Um, I love MIT, so it's been really good to me, and uh, and they've allowed me to really uh, take an interesting path. So I spent many years developing yeah. computer code to uh, uh, enable compu- computers to communicate with uh, humans using natural speech. I, we were the early birds in that space, precursors to Am- Amazon Echo and, and the Siri platform. And, uh, and as the field became commoditized uh, around 2007, 
I could see that I was going to be out of a job pretty soon because mm. academia gets taken over by industry. And then the stuff you're doing, nobody cares anymore because they've got massive numbers of people doing the same thing. So I had to find a new path. But I was very uh, concerned about autism at the same time. I was watching the rates go up every year. Starting around 2000, every year there's more autism. We're just diagnosing it more, don't worry. And I didn't think so. So I wanted to find out. I wanted to get to the bottom of it. Something in the environment is poisoning these kids. And I was determined to figure out what it was. And it took me five years of reading a lot about autism and understanding a lot about the complexities of that condition. It's really complicated, um, but not finding the answer. And then it was just after serendipitously, I happened to hear a, pre a presentation by Professor Don Huber, who's a, he's a retired expert in plant pathology, uh, academic uh, in Purdue University. And um, he's still very active. He's like over 80 years old. He's very impressive. And he gave a two-hour presentation. I was blown away. I was like, this is it. This has got to be it. I was so certain. Because glyphosate, and this is the, the result of that, was this book. Another 10 years later, I, I wrote this book, Toxic Legacy, How the Weed Killer Glyphosate is Destroying Our Health and the Environment. And, um, you know, I basically dived into glyphosate after I got back from that uh, lecture. And the more I looked, the more I was convinced. It's just, uh, it's all over the food supply in the United States. And the government doesn't care because they think it's safe. It's not safe. It's very clearly not safe. And evidence is coming out left and right, actually, in the last few years. I'm quite hopeful uh, that it's going to eventually, I think what's going to happen, if I had to predict in my crystal ball, I would say that the industry is going to stop making it because there will be too many lawsuits. Once we get autism on the map, that glyphosate causes autism, you know, watch out because there's just going to be all kinds of lawsuits. We've already got laws lawsuits on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma yep. that are winning in the U.S. And now there's... Um, Childhood leukemia, which is, has been going up mm. in prevalence, and there have been a couple of papers that came out, you know, one studying animals and one on humans, showing that glyphosate causes uh, early leukemia early in life. Um, that's going to be really big news once it kind of gets out into the mainstream. It's brand new papers, one from Brazil, where they looked at um, epidemiologically at pe uh, places where they were growing a lot of GMO Roundup Ready soybeans and finding a correlation with childhood leukemia. And then the other one was giving rats um, low-dose glyphosate, but below, well below regulatory limits, and then showing that it was causing uh, early-life leukemia. Um, they'd never seen it before. In 1,600 rats that they had studied in various conditions, they'd never seen them develop leukemia, leukemia that early in life, as was showing up in these experiments with the glyphosate. So this is really big news, I think, um, and I'm hopeful. Uh, you know, it, the, Europe is sort of having trouble uh, renewing, um, their license, you know, they want to go another 10 years and they're they're struggling with it. And there's a lot of people who are fighting, letting them know this stuff is toxic. You can't do it. And um, somebody's going to cave. And Mexico has already decided they're not going, you know, they're uh, banning glyphosate. U.S. has been harassing them not to do that, but <laughs> threatening them even. So uh, we'll see how that plays out. But I think enough countries are going to start banning it. And then the industry is going to get worried because they've already got the problem with the lawsuits. Um from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I, I'm hoping, I'm hope, I'm hopeful for the future. But then, of course, the question is, what will they replace it with? And all the other herbicides are also toxic. So uh, we'll see. You've got to go back to certified organic farming. I think it's the only answer. Even renewable, regenerative, you know, all the good stuff. Fix the soil. You fix the soil, you fix the crop, you fix the food, you fix the human. It's a, it's a direct path. Yeah. Wow. Well, first off, that's an incredible journey in your career. It's inspiring because I'm an electrical engineer by by degree as well. But now I've gone down these bio, biology rabbit holes and tying it to health and 
Yeah, when you realize electromagnetism is actually very prevalent in our health, and that's kind of getting more into the quantum side of things, which maybe now you're getting even more interested in, which is cool. But yeah, you beat me to it. Toxic Legacy. I mean, this book is it, it's fantastic because it's both very digestible, but also very in depth. And I definitely, you know, not having a biology background, had to definitely focus in on some areas. But you really lay it out, and it's it's. I was talking to some friends yesterday about how it's like, yeah, glyphosate's actually attacking every aspect of our biology almost, and we can get into some of those mechanisms of we action. We certainly can. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what you're saying is, is really true, and it's, it's really sad because the people don't understand how complicated it is to actually like ban something. And, you know, if you listen to actually some of RFK Jr.'s recent podcasts, he, he talks about that because he knows the litigation strategy yes. in the environmental space. And you really have to have like such an overwhelming amount of research in one specific area. So I think they have that in the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma show right. and the there's been what ten billion dollars of, of lawsuit that lawsuits that they're settling and hundred thousand cases, but that's just one, and that was for at home use, not yes. use on our crops, which that's is right. really the, the the smoking gun. That's what yes. we need to go after, and hopefully that happens. I guess with with autism and and things you're saying, but I guess the problem really is there is is probable cause because there's so many things sprayed on the food from beginning mm -hmm. to end of life to consumption. So do you think it's it's a high likelihood that that will actually be banned or do you think it'll mostly be driven by like consumers at the end of the day? Yes, because yeah, I'm, good point. I'm probably I think lean towards the latter. I know, me too. I've gotten very frustrated with the government. I've tried several times, both at various states and also at the federal level. And I've been very depressed and frustrated every time I've tried. It's really been a hard, a hard walk. I mean, it's just so difficult to get the government. They've been so paid off for so long. They so much want to believe that it's safe, you know, and, and they think we can't grow food without it. They really think it's essential in the U.S. anyway, um, which is really frustrating. But we've got a, a growing population of people who are concerned about their children's health, especially mothers looking at their child with autism or ADHD or even obesity, diabetes. I mean, all these things. Type 1 diabetes is becoming an epidemic despite the fact that it's a genetic disease. And, um, you know, U.S. people are really sick, uh, as you probably know. We have the highest, by far, highest health care costs and the lowest performance among all the industrialized countries. High, high infant mortality, high maternal mortality, uh, low life expectancy. I mean, we've just got really bad health here. And, it's, and you see people limping around all the time. I just get so sad to think about what our government, really, I blame the government for not regulating these things. It's supposed to be their job, and they're not doing it at all. It's very frustrating. But we've got a bunch of um, mothers in this organization called Moms Across America. Uh, Zen Honeycutt is the one who started that. I, I love her. She's a friend of mine. She's been very um, – she's done things like measuring glyphosate. She's done a study on the, on the school lunches. She got all of her moms to donate uh, samples of school lunches and ran them off for, for glyphosate testing. And then she did another uh, uh, study on um, fast food. She got samples from all kinds of different fast food restaurants. This is very recent results. And she analyzed not just glyphosate, but nutritional content and uh, other, you know, toxic metals, all kinds of things, uh, vitamins, B vitamins. And the food was, it just looks really, really pathetic, you know, almost zero uh, critical B vitamins like cobalamin and folate are practically non, non-existent in all of the, of the um, fast foods. 
and glyphosate was found in 100% of the samples. I mean, it's just incredible. Some of it was very high levels of glyphosate, well beyond what you would expect to be safe. And they're poisoning our, our population. You know, and so many people here are so busy. I mean, people are very engaged in their work and they've got all their activities with their iPhones and their iPads and their tablets. And um, they don't want to spend time in the kitchen, you know, they just want to have a very fast meal. It's very convenient. Just grab some food on the way home from the fast food restaurant. Cheap, you know. And then, uh, and tasty because it's got all these synthetic uh, flavors and whatnot. So um, mm-hmm. it's really um, sad that we've come to this, but more and more people are becoming aware they need to pay a huge uh, amount of attention to the food and make sure they buy high quality. Certified organic is catching on more and more. Uh, uh, even the regular um, uh, grocery stores are having lots of availability of different kinds of uh, organic choices, certified organic. You know, when we shop, we always look for that label. If we can't find it on some recipe, we don't do that. We don't make that recipe. You know, we're very uh, rigorous in my in my household. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty strict as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's hard because we just live in this modern toxic soup world. And to me, it's hard to like address what are like the top things that you want to prioritize. But but I think for sure that you're talking about the most pervasive environmental toxins. To me, it's it's glyphosate and the ones that maybe are are for sure either under-discussed or, or really unavoidable is glyphosate, um, blue light, and probably EMFs. And I'm curious mm-hmm. to get your opinion on, on those maybe at the end as well. But the thing that is concerning to me is that even if you are an organic farmer, it depends where you live. Like if you mm-hmm. live and eat organic in Iowa, you're probably right. not avoiding glyphosate at all. So how does that tie into, I guess, moving forward? Because if say we snap our fingers and people stop using glyphosate, which isn't going to happen, how long would it take to really cleanse the soil, cleanse the water, cleanse the environment? Is is that a major concern? Um, it's going to take time. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. going to take time because in certain soils, glyphosate can last for a very long time. And in fact, uh, there was a study in northern Canada. They had sprayed the trees with glyphosate like 11, 12 years before. And then they took the tissues from the trees and they found glyphosate in the trees still uh, 12 years, a decade later. More than a decade later, there was still glyphosate in the trees. Wow. So, it, it wow. you know, it can stick around for a very long time. They, they, we've been told that it uh, disappears quickly. You know, sunlight will help to break it down. And hopefully the microbes in the soil, some of them, it, although not many, so most microbes are stumped by that CP bond that it has. That is very difficult. And, of course, it provides – it's a source of both phosphorus and nitrogen. So it, it washes off into the waterways from the fields, and then it, the phosphorus and nitrogen feed the cyanobacteria. And the cyanobacteria can break glyphosate down, so they're like fantastic. I've got all this nutrition, and so they overgrow and they cause and they release. They encourage the red tide because the uh, the nutrients that mm. they release from glyphosate then fuel the red tide. And um, and we've got a lot of issues in Florida and in the in the, uh, in the uh, Great Lakes uh, of uh, toxic. Uh, algae blooms, you know, that are, I think, a direct consequence of glyphosate. And then is it, this is, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's totally real and it's just crazy how it's infiltrated every aspect of the ecosystem. And then I guess as well, the air, if you're in a really high concentration area, the air could be a source of it as well, right? Hey friend, thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get 
to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yes. And in fact, I've done a lot of, uh, you know, looking around at the issue with biofuels. I don't know if you're aware that I've talked about biofuels. Uh, people think I'm crazy to say this, but I absolutely believe that in the cities um, from the biodiesel and bioethanol, you know, U.S. has like mm. now 10 percent ethanol in yep. their gasoline. They're aiming for that. So to reduce the consumption of uh, fossil fuels, you know, so you just get it from the corn, the GMO Roundup Ready corn, you turn it into ethanol. And you put it in the gasoline and then it evaporates from the gas tank and you've got, got glyphosate in the air. And I definitely think that's happening. And then also the biodiesel. For example, Europe gets biodiesel from South America, from Argentina, from from a GMO Roundup Ready soy. So we're just basically fueling our cars with glyphosate and it's evaporating and it's getting into the air. People are breathing it. And I think that's been a, a factor in COVID because you know, COVID-19 hit you know first in Wuhan, which is a... They have probably a lot of glyphosate in the air there and then in northern Italy um, and then in New York City. I mean, when you follow where it started, these big cities that I think had very toxic air, um, that then glyphosate disrupted the immune system in the lungs that then caused the people to be much more susceptible to infection by the virus. I believe that. Wow. I didn't even think about that. That makes so much sense because, yeah, 10% ethanol, GMO, <laughs> Roundup Ready corn. Obviously, gasoline is terrible for you from like the benzene perspective to in inhale that. Now we're just adding on. It's just to me, it's we're layering it all on, right? You know, right. like 50 know years ago, maybe many, there was many. some stuff, but there's so many toxins now. And then it's quite um, frightening <laughs> to think about. There's just a and, threshold, right? And it's like, what is yes. going to push you over the threshold might not be the worst effect. Offender. It might be the baseline that's coming up with, you know, yeah. 30, 40% of your dysfunction, but then that, that one yeah. thing, and yeah, maybe that's a, a, a ejection to a lot of people because that was just all in short term instead of decades of buildup. But wow, it's uh Yeah. I mean, shocking. there are so many chemicals that we're exposed to. It's completely uncountable and, uh, and various you know, degrees. And uh, PFAS is another one that's a very serious mm -hmm. problem is forever chemicals. And then glufosinate and uh, dicamba, all these different herbicides. Um, atrazine, atrazine has been shown to cause frog, male frogs to become female. Yep. They've got an XY gene and they can are completely viable females. They can produce eggs that reproduce. I mean, it's amazing, you know, when you think about that. <laughs> disruption yeah, of, the, that, of the sexual development of the frogs. That, but I guess comparing that to glyphosate, because you, what you, basically the case you make in your book is that glyphosate is, you know, a head and shoulders above the rest. So maybe we get into the mechanisms of action on why, why is it so toxic for our mm -hmm. biology and why is it causing chaos in, in so many areas? Yes, I don't know where to begin, but uh, certainly in my book, I outline what I believe is the primary uh, diabolical effect of glyphosate that's unique to glyphosate. Now, I don't know anything else that causes this, which is to, uh, it's, a, it's an amino acid. Glyphosate is an amino acid. And the amino acids, we have the, the coding amino acids that are the building blocks of our proteins, and they're also, they, they, they're, they have all kinds of roles in our body. Amino acids are really central to biology. Uh, and uh, glyphosate is a glycine molecule. Glycine is the smallest amino acid, has no side chains, and glyphosate also has no side chains. So it's a perfect glycine, beautiful glycine molecule, except that it's got some stuff stuck on its nitrogen atom. And that makes all the difference. So it's got this met uh, methylphosphonate unit, which is a carbon, a CP bond, you know, and then it's got some oxygens. It's, it's got this extra bulky thing stuck onto its nitrogen atom. 
And that really messes things up as far as it behaving. And so what I think is happening is that glyphosate is getting inserted into, into proteins where the code calls for glycine. If there's a code for glycine, it mistakes glyphosate for glycine at the assembly process, and the glyphosate gets put into the protein. And now it's got this extra methylphosphonate unit sticking out into the world that is in certain places can completely disrupt that protein's ability to do its job. And I can, and I outline in my book exactly which proteins I expect to be susceptible. And then I can show from studies they found that it suppresses the very same proteins in many cases. So I show in my book where there's good evidence from research that what I predict would be happening is happening. For example, succinate dehydrogenase, which is a super important uh, enzyme in the mitochondria. And it's been shown in multiple studies to be suppressed by glyphosate. And it has what I call a glyphosate susceptibility motif. Which, is, which I define as a place where there's a highly conserved glycine residue, often more than one, at a site where the protein binds phosphate, and that that glycine, if you substitute something else for it, that protein's dead in the water. And you can, there's a lot of proteins like that because you know, phosphate is, is ATP, GTP. You know, uh, there's lots of different PEP, all these different uh, very active biological molecules that have phosphate. And so anytime a protein binds phosphate at a place where it has a highly conserved glycine, that's a, that's a place where you're going to get glyphosate in there messing it up. And I can then list the proteins, and there's a lot of them. You know, I haven't found them all. I still find new ones you know, to, to this day um, that you can predict it will mess up. And then you can see the um, different diseases that those that mutations in those proteins cause certain diseases that are also going up dramatically in step with the rise in glyphosate. So you kind of connect all those dots to make the story which I did in my book, um, I think the evidence is overwhelming. And I think that it's overwhelming from Monsanto's own studies. And really particularly central is this um, EPSP synthase, which is the enzyme that glyphosate famously disrupts. It has a highly conserved glycine residue. It had a place where it binds phosphate. And if you change that glycine, the code, if you change the code to alanine, which is an extra methyl group, very small change for the protein, um, glyphosate is dead in the water. It doesn't affect the protein at all. In other words, it has to be glycine in order for glyphosate to substitute because it sees the code. It's the code that's important. Alanine's a different code. Yeah, I think this molecular mimicry, for me, it became familiar with like a lot of the endocrine disruptors. But then when you mm -hmm. learn about glyphosate, it's, it's even, it's like next level because of how prevalent yeah. glycine is and just proteins how are in, in the is, function. You know, yeah. How important um, yes. And it's it's so incredible to realize how, well it's sad but it is incredible how important it is and then how many functions are and, and like you said you detailed that in your book uh, extensively and there's so so many repercussions of that so like the one you just mentioned and that's like affecting the um shikimate pathway mm -hmm. which is gets into this backstory of why they said that it's not bad for us, right? Um, is right. The, Monsanto is saying that this pathway only exists in plants and not in human biology, but in reality, it, it exists in our in our microbiome. And and really, one of my biggest revelations from reading your book is how prevalent our gut microbiota is in producing things like the B vitamins and, and mm -hmm. amino acids, aromatic amino acids, which are obviously extremely important cofactors and, and extremely important for synth synthesizing downstream things like melanin, melatonin, serotonin, etc. So yeah, maybe you could highlight that a little because I think this kind of wordsmithing by Monsanto really 
I probably was the beginning of the downfall for all of this in terms of affecting our biology. Right. To say that because the human cells don't contain uh, the, the enzyme that it suppresses, then yay, yay, we're good, right? Because our cells are healthy and not going to be affected by it. But we have a lot of microbes that are doing a lot of important things for the host. And most of those microbes have that uh, EPSB synthase. Some of them have versions that are, um, that are not susceptible to glyphosate because they don't have glycine at that site. And, um, and so they become, uh, uh, can become pathogens like Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Pseudomonas can break down glyphosate. So only a few microbes can break it down. And what will happen is that the microbes, the ones that are being killed preferentially are the really uh, important beneficial bacteria, the lactobacillus and the um, uh, bifidobacteria. Those are really important in the infant gut. Particularly lactobacillus is what helps them digest milk. So a lot of kids have issues with milk and they, they end up on a soy diet and the soy has lots of glyphosate in it. They just go downhill from there. You know, it's kind of a, a bad path. Um, and so, so casein and, um, and gluten, you know, intolerance have become epidemic in our country. We've got so many uh, gluten-free choices now at the grocery store because so many people are sensitive to gluten and casein. That's really interesting because those particular proteins have lots of proline in them. And mm. proline is a really, really interesting amino acid. I want to talk more about it later because it relates to this deuterium story yep. that we're going to get into. Um, but proline uh, is is a, a strange amino acid because it has a, the, the, the side chain loops around and hooks back onto the nitrogen atom. And that makes it very um, inflexible. And it's used in proteins in interesting ways, which we can get into. Uh, but it's difficult to uh, to digest it. And so and lactobacillus have several different enzymes that specialize in breaking proline apart from the other amino acids. And uh, we don't have those enzymes ourselves, so we depend upon the gut microbes to help us out with digesting gluten and casein. And they get sick from the glyphosate. They can't do it. And then those proteins don't get digested. And then you have these peptide sequences containing proline that become allergenic. And, and through molecular mimicry, you can end up with antibodies to those peptides that didn't get digested. And those antibodies can then become autoantibodies attacking uh, human proteins that have a similar sequence. This is called molecular mimicry, and it's a well-known process. And so we've got all these kids that can't eat gluten, can't eat casein, and that's really uh, causing them to have a very disruptive, um, you know, makes it hard to feed your kids when they can't eat casein and gluten because they're all over the food supply. And there are basic foods that are important for you, too. Actually, proline is so essential for your health that if you can't digest proline, you know, you're probably going to end up with proline deficiencies as well. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, th I think it's incredible. And that's one of the main, I guess, mechanisms or areas that people are pretty familiar with is that it is like a nuke, a nuke for your gut, really. Um, but when you get into how it works and then how something I realized is just how important the gut is for, for producing things like, like B vitamins. And I think you said in your book that it, it augments the, the dietary intake of it. So that's something that especially, you know, folks uh, in the diet community pretty much never talk about and that, you know, care we, we need to have for our microbiota and just the how diverse uh, the diversity, I should say, has been just decreasing tremendously over, yes, that's right. you know, decades. And if you look at like studies comparing the Hadza in Africa and Tanzania compared to the modern yes. man, it's, it's so I think crazy. I talked about that in my book. I have a chapter on the gut, which I've spent a long time on it. The gut is a hard problem when you start looking. The research literature has blossomed. There's tons of papers now and they're very um, complex with all these pretty colors mm -hmm. and all these, you know, Venn diagrams and all uh, all of these different microbes in different amounts. And 
it's extremely overwhelming, but I eventually dug a story out of that. I feel that I'm quite confident about, which is super interesting because glyphosate um, causes the pH of the gut to go up. And I think that's because of these undigested peptides, because normally the proteins come in, they get broken down into the amino acids, they get absorbed in the mid-gut, they get absorbed into the system, and now everybody's happy because you need those amino acids to make human proteins, you know? But they don't get digested, they end up in the lower gut, still as peptide sequences. And then there's gut microbes there that can break them down, but can't break, uh, but break them down all the way because you can no longer absorb those amino acids. They have to be broken down all the mm. way to nitrogen, which is gonna be ammonia, which is gonna be a high pH. Yep. So you raise the pH of the gut, and then that causes the acid-loving microbes to get sick. They can't really live in this high pH. Those are the ones that make the acetate, the butyrate, the, the propionate. These are uh, short-chain fatty acids that are incredibly important for the host because the, um, the colonocytes in aligning the gut, uh, their main food is butyrate. And butyrate comes from these acid-loving bacteria. And, and so when they can't make the butyrate, the colonocytes get sick. And then you end up with, you know, inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel disease. And eventually you get, you know, colon cancer and things like that. All of which yeah. are going up dramatically in step with the rise in glyphosate usage in this country. Yeah, I was going to say that's something that's definitely kind of been uh, increasing. And that's uh, an area where I think... Uh, a lot of correlative studies have shown like red meat consumption is affecting colorectal cancer and things like that. And to me, it's, you know, the greater picture of environmental toxins. You look into these cofactors or um, independent variables that they're trying to account for. And it's, it's never glyphosate or, or things like that. So I guess at a high level, yeah, what, what have you seen and what have you discussed um, in, in terms of correlation to rising chronic disease? Like, why do you think it is glyphosate in terms of the exposure levels that have happened over time? Because it's kind of varied in terms of when it first came out to now, mm -hmm. you know, they're using it as a desiccant, they're using it way more um, often in, in higher quantities uh, than they were, say, in the 80s and 90s. Absolutely, yeah. So it's been around since 1974. That's when it was first approved in, in the United States. Uh, we've been using it since 74, but it was a slow rise in the beginning, uh, you know, because they didn't have the glyphosate uh, Roundup-ready crops. They figured that out, like, in the late 1990s. And it really, things got a lot worse starting in 2000 because they started introducing the GMO Roundup-ready corn and soy and canola, sugar beets, you know, these are all core foods of the processed foods industry, co core resources for processed foods. And so, um, and then we started really getting into processed foods as well at the same time. So we have all these cheap, um, you know, fast food services um, like McDonald's, and Burger King and that sort of thing. And, uh, and so, uh, and, and there was a lot of sort of pushing too that people were too busy to cook. Like you, you shouldn't waste time in the kitchen. You know, there was messaging like that to try to encourage you to eat all these processed foods that they're selling to you, have the TV dinners and things like that. And so a lot of times, uh, a lot of people switched over to eating these foods that were derived from these crops that were loaded with glyphosate. And the, um, the, uh, the weeds got resistant to the glyphosate. That was a big problem too. They were using the glyphosate. It was wonderful at first, you know, just to have nothing but the crop growing, all the weeds are dead. And then, but over time, the weeds developed resistance, probably by mutations in that EPSB synthase to get rid of that glycine. And, um, and then, so they had to use more and more glyphosate to kill the weeds. And now they're actually at a point where they have to add something else. So they've got these glyphosate plus formulations like glyphosate plus dicamba. Dicamba is also a very toxic herbicide. Put the two together in the same product. Um, 
and then because you need the dicamba to kill the weeds that are resistant to the glyphosate, that kind of thing. So there's been escalating uh, levels of glyphosate over time, and, and you can get the data, and that's what we've done. I collaborated with Nancy Swanson and some other people, and we did a lot of rummaging through the databases of uh, available on the web, open actually, from the uh, U.S. government on, on the use of glyphosate on corn and soy crops, and then on the various diseases, you know, hospital discharge data. There's data available to see, to track uh, the increase in various diseases. And of course, autism has been going up, you know, practically exponentially in the United States. Unbelievable. Now it's like one in 36. It's just shocking. And of course, that's four times as many boys as girls. Mm -hmm. So you think about the poor boys. I mean, they don't have a chance. You know, it's getting really um, hard to produce a a son who's going to be completely healthy because we've got autism, you know, is, is terrible, but there's also ADHD and obesity and diabetes. And all these things are showing up and also various allergies, you know, to food allergies and autoimmune diseases. I mean, there's just, you know, lung problems. There's just asthma. There's a huge uh, skin issues, all kinds of stuff. I mean, the U.S. Uh, population of children right now are very sick, I think. It, it's hard to find a healthy child in this country, you know, with nothing, with nothing wrong with them. Yeah, and I think we're just getting started, to be honest, because when I think about mitochondrial DNA mutations being passed down to the next generation, um, exactly. just thinking thinking about what kids are eating that are eight years old, 10 year old, 10 years old now, and then coupling in all the artificial blue light, EMF screen time earlier than ever before, just more sleep disruption. So they're getting hit at all fronts. And then if they grow up to their 20s, 30s, and they have a next generation, Yes. I mean, it's just there's there's going to be a point where I don't know if it's infertility or, or something is, is completely yes. stopping this from from taking place. And it's uh, it, it's amazing how resilient the body is to be able to still have children in such a toxic environment. But then you yes. see all these outcomes that in chronic diseases that you're talking about. And yeah, it's it's pretty scary, to be honest. Yeah, And, you know, there have been studies, recent studies on on mice where they expose the pregnant mouse to uh, low dose glyphosate. And, and so low that you didn't really notice any effects. And then the offspring also seemed perfectly fine. So then they let them grow up and have pups and then let them grow up and have pups. And each generation gets worse and worse. This is from the exposure to the great grandmother at that point, you know. And then you see more and more of all these different conditions and the infertility issues all showing up, uh, premature birth uh, in the later generations. So it's it, there's a memory in the germline that's the germline pays a lot of attention to the exposures in utero. And it remembers it. It's epigenetic effects. It's really, really remarkable. And there's been multiple studies now that have shown that with glyphosate, low-dose glyphosate exposure during pregnancy, long-lasting effects that show up in the second and third generations. Yeah. So so I remember reading that and that, yeah, that blew my mind. And I think you're talking about seven generations potentially could be traced back to. So that's that mechanisms through the microbiota that gets passed along, you think? Is that? Um... Well, it's, it's actually the germ line. So it's the germ cells within. So the, the female um, infant actually produces her, she's ready with her second, with her kids, you know, ready to produce kids. The, the, germ, the eggs are all yeah, formed yeah. before she has a brain. I mean, it's really quite early in the development of the, of the fetus. Um, the next generation is prepared in the female child. And then meanwhile, it's getting exposed to these toxins the mother's uh, exposing herself to. They get in there and that germline uh, reacts to it with epigenetic effects like methylation, Mm. you know, different methylation Mm -hmm. pathways. There's ways in which it can remember, oh, I had this nasty exposure. And then that ends up 
changing the policy of how of how that child grows, you know, and, and then going all the way to the next generation is still there as a memory. It's interesting because the female develops her reproductive capacity very, very early, whereas the male kind of waits the last minute, you know, because the sperm, don't they develop on the fly, so to speak. So there's a very big difference between the male and the female aspect. And I think that there, that's a significant part of how reproduction works, that the female has sort of the history and the male is like the brand new, whatever's happening right now as far as exposures. Uh, to the adults, you know, so they're catching yeah. uh, over a long. And then range you of- couple in mitochondrial um, inheritance from the mother as well. So that's yes, really exactly. So- of course, the mitochondrial so- DNA is very sensitive to uh, exposures to toxic elements, and including the uh, reactive oxygen that it produces when it has certain problems that glyphosate uh, causes. So there have been studies that have shown that glyphosate causes oxidative stress, which is going to cause DNA mm-hmm. damage, which is going to lead to cancer down the road. Yeah, so I guess men picking your spouse is this very has never been more important than ever uh, in terms <laughs> of uh, organic when you were a kid. Oh, okay, good. I'm I'm yours. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's funny, and now you know my mom. She's from Austria, and we grew up eating organic and being way more health conscious than the most the majority of Americans. Um, and I think that's common for immigrant families. They're just more connected to the food system compared mm-hmm. to third, fourth generation Americans. And yeah, I'm I'm so thankful. I I told her that uh, quite often when I learned that the mitochondrial only comes from from the mother so it's uh yeah everyone out there thank your mother for for your (laughs) mitochondrial dna and then passing on that that germline that you're saying but something i want to get into that you just mentioned there is that is the dosing right because often and you say this in your book often the dose makes the poison and you know the safety limits I mean, everyone knows that like the safety limits are all BS for whatever you, toxin you want to put out there. But some of the research that, that you cited is saying that actually the lower doses were more mm-hmm. toxic than the higher doses. And that's what's that so is surprising. Like in, yeah. incomprehensible almost. Yeah, it's surprising. And I think the industry knew that back in the 1970s when they were trying to get glyphosate approved. They actually uh, set up rules. The industry said that if if you look for three months and you don't see any evidence of harm with animal studies, you're good to go. You know, that's long enough. You're good to go. And they also said if you look at high doses and you don't see any trouble with animal studies, you don't have to look any lower than that. Like that's, you know, it's going to get better if it's lower and therefore you don't need to look. And I suspect that they had actually looked and found that it actually was more toxic at low doses. And so they came up with this rule in order to protect themselves from having to do those studies because um, endocrine disruptors are well known uh, to have that property. And there's many different plastics are endocrine disruptors. And that's another concern that I have with all the plastics that we have in our environment. Um, they uh, they affect, uh, the, they're much more toxic at low doses than they are at higher doses. And that's the property of glyphosate. Low dose glyphosate. Why, in fact, we, yeah, they didn't study low yeah, dose glyphosate. Yeah, I was just going to ask why, why is that? Why is it's that fascinating, the case? isn't it? I think it has to do with if it's if it's low dose, it starts to look like an endocrine. Um, you know, uh, we have these hormones that have are very they're active at very low concentrations, and so when mm. glyphosate is at those same low concentrations, it, it behaves like those um, like those hormones, and and they and affects the the cell miscommunicating it to it about things like estrogen. And so, you know, in development, it's really critical to have the proper timing of when the estrogen shows up where and what's going on with the development. And if, if glyphosate is thrown into the mix, it totally messes up the timing of the development of the, for example, the brain. And um, it's uh, when it's at higher doses, it may not even be able to get into the cell. It's sort of like the concentration. You know, the biology is so complicated as far as what, how things are going to get picked up and how they're going to be moved into the cell. 
And so at the higher concentrations, it may just sort of mess things up so badly it doesn't actually get into the cell. Are you self-employed or a small business owner and are tired of paying hundreds of dollars a month to centralize health insurance companies for minimal coverage because there is no alternative? Well, I have good news for you. There is. And this podcast is brought to you by CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a more decentralized alternative to health insurance, and it uses community and crowdfunding to help its members pay for emergencies when they do happen. They incentivize and prioritize health and personal responsibility and share the thought that you should really only be using the centralized healthcare system when emergencies do happen. This is what I am on board with, and I have personally signed up for CrowdHealth since I left the corporate engineering world and the medical benefits that come with it. If you want to learn more, you can check out our episode with CEO and founder Andy Schoonover, or you can head over to joincrowdhealth.com and use code DRADIO, D-R-A-D-I-O, when you sign up to get a discounted rate of only $99 for the first three months. Centralized healthcare is one of the biggest issues in our society today, and I really love what CrowdHealth is doing to provide an alternative for people who care. Yeah, it's like kind of like if it's sneaking around in, in these low concentrations, it's got a better chance. Uh, I always thought of it as like kind of just like stealing someone's parking spot in, in the parking garage. And if there's, yeah, I guess if there's a ton of ton of glyphosate coming in, there's only X amount of spots in terms of endocrine disruptors that, that it could take that um, biological spot or seat or whatever you want to compare it to. And, and that's it interesting. It is surprising and, and, that it's more toxic yeah. at low doses. It's very counterintuitive. Well, that's even more scary for just the the layman because it's like, you know, how much effort are you going to go to, to, you know, just getting this out of your system and the exposure levels, but, you know, you can do the best you can. And the other thing that, that one study that really resonated with me was when it does actually get into the cell and get into the tissue, it, it actually like becomes part of your body, right? Exactly. And that yes. was the bluegill study, I believe, that, right, that the Monsanto was really seminal, researchers and I talked about that in up. my chapter where I was trying to convince the uh, reader that it that it substitutes for glycine because they uh, that was a really good study. And that was done by Monsanto. Uh, it was commissioned by Monsanto when they were trying to seek approval. And um, they exposed these bluegill uh, sunfish to radio-labeled glyphosate so they could track the radio label. And then they took tissue samples and they found radio label in the samples, which meant that glyphosate had gotten in there. But they, um, so then they said, well, let's test for glyphosate using a standard test. And they came up short, like only about up to 20% of the radio label could be accounted for as glyphosate. So it maybe was some derivative product. They didn't know what it was, but they got the brilliant idea of adding uh, enzymes that would break down the um, proteins into individual amino acids. And then they ran the test again, and they got up to 80% recovery of the radio label as glyphosate once they had broken down the uh, proteins. And then they said perhaps it was incorporated into the protein. That was their words, uh, which thrilled me because this was back in the 1970s, I guess maybe 1980s, that they said this. Um, and yet it didn't go anywhere. Like, you know, but nobody told anybody that this is what they found, and they should have because that is really incredible. If it was incorporated into the protein, the, the uh, significance of that is huge. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really scary. And it's just like you're almost becoming this, yeah, this toxic being or, or in that case, the bluegill that's, yeah, it's trying to just go about its normal functions. But this thing is like permanently ingrained into your biology. And, and this is why you yeah. can't wash it off in the plants because it's going to be embedded in the proteins in the plants. So when you eat the plants, the proteins get digested, the glyphosate gets liberated, and now it can go get into your proteins in various spots, you know. 
Mm, yeah, that, might, that makes up. a lot of sense. So how is the, I guess, the detoxification of glyphosate? You mentioned the one strain of bacteria can kind of break it down. Is there other ways to do it or are there other ways to keep it out of the cell um, through just, you know, more optimal function, more optimal, um, you know, toxic resilience by just having healthy kind of immune system or just proper signaling right. You know, easy if structured water, keeping it out, whatever. Right, right. If you have um, a healthy immune system, then you're going to have a healthy system to be able to digest. So you need to have healthy lysosomes uh, because uh, the lysosomes can can break down proteins. And, and um, I mean, that's only going to succeed in getting out of the protein. Now you're going to have free glyphosate, and that's going to have to get, get – it's going to be hard to get rid of that because there's, your human cells can't break down glyphosate. Uh, and uh, the gut microbes, uh, some of them can break it down to AMPA, but AMPA is still toxic. You've still got that CP bond, which is a huge problem. Mm. Um, so there are just a few microbes that can uh, can completely metabolize glyphosate. And I, I think that there must be some people who are lucky enough to have those microbes in their gut, and they can become really quite robust against glyphosate, I would think, because those microbes would be breaking it down. There'd be a question of what else those microbes might do, because Pseudomonas rugosa is a very... Um, um, it's a problem in the hospitals. It's not a. It's not a. It's not mm. a good microbe to have. You know. <laughs> um, of course. Uh, Acetobacter is also able to break it down, and so um, I have some forms of Acetobacter, and I have claimed that eating, uh, taking apple cider vinegar or sauerkraut, you know, would be uh, potentially able to break down the glyphosate with those microbes that are in those naturally uh, fermented foods. So I do promote uh, the idea of eating fermented foods. Uh, with the hope that they might be able to break down the glyphosate. But we don't know for sure because it's only some forms of acetobacter, so I don't know whether some of the uh, some of the uh, apple cider vinegar might work and other, other ones might not. You know, it's not at all clear and hasn't been properly yeah. studied yet. So, I um, think with all things with the gut, just the embracing the biodiversity is something I've been fully on board with. And it's, uh, yeah, if, if it's attacking, glyphosate's attacking that from the um you know front edge and then it also can be helpful in potentially breaking it down yeah by all means throw any mm -hmm. anything you can in terms of diversity at your gut i think or in general not just your gut right your skin your oral microbiome across the board mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. another but, uh, thing so i wanted to ask as well oh sorry you could go no, go ahead go ahead I was just going to transition to something I wanted to get to before we get into deuterium, and that was sulfate, because yes. another revelation I had in your book, again, that nobody really talks about is the importance of, of sulfation in the body, um, especially how imperative it is for you know things like steroid hormones and sex hormones, and it's a relationship with sunlight, obviously, uh, on this podcast and in general, I preach a lot about the importance of sunlight and that kind of goes hand in hand with sulfation. So maybe you could talk just a little bit about that, why, maybe why that's under discussed in biology and then how, yeah, glyphosate is also disrupting this, of course, as well. Yeah, I'm actually really surprised at how little attention has been given to sulfate uh, in the biological literature still to this day. You know, yeah. I think that if there's a lack of an awareness or whether there's a a direct a directing people away from sulfate because the industry realizes that if you figure that out they're going to be in trouble. I mean, I don't know. You get kind of paranoid after a while because it's it's surprisingly little attention to sulfate, and I think glyphosate is um, a complete train wreck for sulfate. And I talk a lot about, about that in my book. It's very clear that autistic kids have an issue with sulfate. They've got um, they flush sulfate from their urine, so they can't hang, hold on to it, and they have wow. low sulfate in their blood. 
and they have very low heparin sulfate in the brain ventricles, which is really crucial, both the autistic kids and the autistic mice. They have these mice that they can um, create, these mice that behave autistically, and they study them, you know, to try to understand autism. They're pretty interesting, those mice, actually, various forms of mice that have been uh, rigged to be uh, to behave autistically. And, um, and, and those they had one study where they simply uh, poisoned the mice at birth with, with a poison that messed up their ability to make heparin sulfate in the brain ventricles. And, and that was the only change they made, and those mice became autistic. So that is quite remarkable. I think that that issue of, of insufficient heparin sulfate in the brain, heparin sulfate is critical for the development of the brain, the neurodevelopment of the, of the neurons as they come out and become, uh, you know, form the brain. They need that heparin sulfate to do that properly. So I think uh, autism, um, I think it's a core feature of autism to have sulfate deficiency. And I think it's a result of glyphosate messing up the whole system by which the sulfate gets distributed. And the, the interesting thing is that there are all these biologically active molecules that need to be sulfated in order to be transported. And so they become, their transport becomes compromised when they can't be sulfated. So not only is the sulfate not getting delivered, but also the carrier molecule is not getting delivered. And they, there's these big classes. One of them is the aromatic amino acids and all the derivatives of them. That's what comes out of the shikimate pathway. Mm -hmm. And the other group is cholesterol and vitamin D and sex hormones. Those are the sterols. And the sterols all depend upon sulfate to be transported. Even So melatonin, for example, gets sulfated. It gets released by the pineal gland in the evening. And this is what helps you to sleep, you know, the melatonin. It, it gets a sulfate attached to it. It gets shipped out into the cerebral spinal fluid as melatonin sulfate. And both the melatonin and the sulfate are very important to the brain during sleep. But if you can't, so the, but the pineal gland, so there was a study on, a, a very recent study on autistic kids, amazing, that they showed a deficiency in, um, in a, a, a protein that sulfates um, aromatics and, and polyphenols and all these things that are in the gut like uh, P-cresol, so P-cresol sulfate gets formed by this sulfotransferase in the gut that was severely deficient in autism. They showed that, and they showed that these same sulfotransferases were deficient in the blood. And then they had actually post-mortem autistic kids that they were able to analyze the pineal gland, and they found that it was deficient in heparin sulfate, and it was also deficient in this enzyme that adds sulfate to the heparin. So it's like really, really clear to me that this deficiency in this uh, ability to attach sulfate to these biologically important molecules is a train wreck for so many things because all the cholesterol, the, um, the vitamin D, um, the sex hormones, testosterone, estrogen, they're all affected. They, they, these things are all fat-soluble. And by adding sulfate, you make them water-soluble. They make it, them able to be shipped out in the blood without fussing with putting them inside lipid particles and stuff like that. So they become... When they can't sulfate these things, they become deficient in all of those things that need sulfate to be transported, as well as in sulfate, deficiency in sulfate. And both of those are very problematic, and I think they're core features of autism. Yeah, and these are, you know, extremely important molecules for so many different aspects of our biology. It's, it's, it's interesting, too, how they're all uh, ring structures as well exactly. and have this it's ability to very, very capture light. Actually. Yes, yep. yes, yeah, absolutely. So, so that's what's cool. Yes, and then yeah. of course light also triggers uh, heparin, uh, sulfate production in the skin. I've written I've written papers about that, and I also talk about it in my book. I think it's really really interesting um, that in the in the presence of sunlight, uh, the skin makes sulfate. It makes vitamin D, of course, and it makes sulfate, and it makes vitamin D sulfate, and it makes cholesterol sulfate. 
all of those are really important. The skin releases a lot of cholesterol sulfate, and it'll release more with the exposure to the sunlight. And that cholesterol sulfate is then going to supply cholesterol and sulfate to the brain and to the rest of the body. And the brain really, really needs the cholesterol and the sulfate to be healthy. Yeah, I mean that's like the building blocks of right like so many hormones so many functions and to me seeing your work from like what is like 10 years ago was really just you're talking about this stuff and now it's just getting to the forefront of why this might be really important for our biology and um you know you think about it and you think about it in the context of the centralized healthcare system there's reference ranges for cholesterol that is clearly dependent mm -hmm. on light exposure which will be seasonally um varying and then there's the these fixes, these interventions with supplements and supplements you've talked about on a few podcasts, but to me, it's obvious then from the sulfation perspective, and then we can get into the deuterium perspective. It's, it's not equivalent at all. And it's right. not really a good approach, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So to me, there's uh, there's no replacing these these innate biological functions that nature has designed for us, and and there's a reason why it is so complex. But it, it makes sense when you understand that that mechanism. So I, I personally would like to see a lot more education on on sulfate, but maybe uh, that's that's not going to come anytime soon. I guess in general, for people, is is the best way to get more just you know more sun and then eating sulfate eating rich sulfur foods. Eating sulfate-containing foods, yeah, and of course, animal-based foods are a better source mm -hmm. of, of cysteine and methionine. These sort of crucial sulfur-containing amino acids, which are so important. You know, glutathione needs to have cysteine as part of it. It's, glutathione has three amino acids. One of them is glycine, and that's also problematic. Mm. Glyphosate messes up glutathione in a big way. Yeah, and glutathione is the master, one of the master antioxidants. If if you aren't familiar with that, folks, and that's why N-acetylcysteine is a really that's popular right. su supplement that, for some reason, got like sort of banned and then returned to over-the-counter status over COVID. That was quite strange, but mm, um, that's yeah. very strange. Yes, because <laughs> it, it, it was a very helpful um, supplement for COVID. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I don't know. the And that gets into, again, the supplementation industry is not regulated um, at all. And yeah, it, it gets into, again, the deuterium component where it's like, we don't really know anything that's synthetic is quite um, a problem. And that's something you mentioned as well in your podcast with, with my, my friend Max Golhane, which was mm -hmm. fantastic um, as well as, is the methionine component, right? From eating animal-based foods. That yes. was mind blowing to me because the longest time, I mean, I've listened to these biohackers and people like that and they eat animal based, they eat meat, but they would always be like, well, there is one caveat, you know, a methionine has been shown to be bad for aging, you know, upregulating mTOR. Yeah, did I talk and about then, that there? Because I have a very yeah, good story yeah, for please, that. Please mention, mention so that here as well, because that's so important. That this is, is a, a big yeah. thing, really, in the I space know. of I remember years ago reading about this methionine deficiency idea to try to live longer. And I was like, that is just so wild, so crazy. How can that possibly be true? You know, I was blown away by it. It just doesn't make any sense because methionine is extremely important. You know, it's like every protein that's made starts with methionine. That's it's how you start the protein to synthesis. And how could deficiency be a good thing? And so I, I, just recently I, I had the idea because methionine, of course, is the source of methyl groups. This can get us into the deuterium big time. Did mm -hmm. I talk about this in the one that you heard, right? Is that right? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, it's so fascinating. So it, it turns out the gut microbes are responsible for making this methyl, CH3, 
which has these three H's that are not deuterium. They're like almost guaranteed not to be deuterium because of what the microbes do. And so they become very important to the body, the, the CH3 that's attached to the sulfur of the methionine uh, amino acid. And then, um, and then that CH3 becomes the methyl groups that get distributed throughout your body, you know, stuck onto your protein, stuck onto your uh, DNA, your RNA. It's like thrown around everywhere, you know, uh, in the body. And they hold on to it. And then eventually it gets metabolized in place, like from the DNA. That methyl gets metabolized and turned into carbon dioxide and water with it in, in the mitochondria. And those H's get delivered to the mitochondria, H's that are guaranteed not to be deuterium. And so that becomes very valuable to the body. It's actually storing all these methyls as a resource for when mitochondria become toxic because they've got too much deuterium. They need to have a really good source of a guaranteed food that's going to be healthy. They can grab the methyls off the DNA. And eventually, if they grab enough of them, the DNA becomes deficient in methyls. And now you've got cancer because that's how the clue for cancer, you know, many of the cancers are, are a consequence of hypomethylated DNA. DNA has been losing its methyls. And that's like the cell is saying, hey, my DNA is losing its methyls. We probably have a deuterium problem here. You know, it's like a signal that there's a deuterium problem because it's had to steal the uh, methyls from the, from the DNA. When you, so they had this study on these, on these rats and they fed them uh, a, a synthetic diet. They were given uh, amino acids that were produced in the laboratory. It was explained in the paper. So the rats were given all these you know, equal, uh, appropriate amounts of all the different amino acids to, to eat. That's their food. It's, it's very highly synthetic. It was made in the chemistry lab. And so they gave the control group lots of methionine and then the treatment group low methionine. So that's your low methionine diet. And they showed that the guys, the, the rats that got the low methionine diet lived longer and were healthier, you know? So then they said, well, of course then methionine's bad, right? And the flaw is that that methionine that those rats ate was not guaranteed to have low, low deuterium in its methyl groups. It was made in the chemistry lab. So those methyl groups were not gold at all. They were just crap, you know, so to speak. They were, they were not healthy food. But on the other hand, they had methionine, so they, didn't, they weren't inspired to make methionine because there was already plenty. So they were basically misled into thinking that methionine was, was perfectly healthy the way it would normally be if it had been made biologically. But because it was made in the chemistry lab, it didn't have the low deuterium. So these rats are all saving all this methyl groups and being careful to keep them, keep track of them. But those methyls are no good because they came from the synthetic laboratory instead of from a biological source. Yeah, and and just for anyone who um, isn't as familiar with deuterium, definitely I just recorded a podcast with Laszlo Boros, who's kind of the you know one of the world experts in deuteronomics, and Stephanie is working with uh, quite frequently, which is really exciting. So go listen to that if you need a rundown on the overview of what deuterium is, why it's bad for us, um, so we can get into the more fun stuff here. But yeah, that's so fascinating in terms of the synthetic, you know, again, I hate when a, a lot of these, uh, maybe it's more the fitness bros or, or the, you know, show me the study guys are like, well, there's no difference between synthetic and that natural components. True. And now it's like, well, we have here, we have some proof that actually there is. Yes. And um, why, why is there actually a difference? Is it just because they don't consider those deuterium yeah. depletion steps that are yeah, innate biology has built in? Precisely. Yeah. And first yeah. of all, I want to say that melatonin has the same problem yeah that's the and other N-acetylcysteine one <laughs> does too so the acetyl in n-acetylcysteine that's going to be low deuterium if it comes from the gut microbes 
But if it's made synthetically, it won't. So if you're taking a supplement, N-acetylcysteine, no guarantee that that acetyl is going to be low deuterium. And, and uh, melatonin, you know, melatonin has both an acetyl and a methyl attached to it. It starts out as, as tryptophan, which, of course, comes out of the shikimate pathway. Tryptophan gets turned into serotonin, which is another, you know, mm-hmm. neurotransmitter, serotonin. And then serotonin gets turned into melatonin. And when you do that, you add a methyl and an acetyl. Both of them are going to be low deuterium if they came from a biological source. But if you eat a methionine that's made in the chemistry lab, which it typically is, that's how you can do it cheaply. You don't have to, you know, you imagine growing microbes and then having to purify the methionine that's in there with all the other stuff that's there, right? Or the melatonin. That's a lot of work. So you'd rather just make it chemically. Uh, you can get a, a pure supply more easily. You don't have to deal with all the biological life that might be mixed up in there and cause problems, you know? So most of these supplements are chemically made, and they're not going to be good. So I don't recommend any of these supplements. They're going to have these uh, – uh, choline is another one. Choline is going to be low deuterium if it comes from a biological source. But if they're making it in the chemistry lab, forget it. It's not good for you. So I think people are, are loading up on supplements that are actually hurting them because they're giving – they're not uh, supplying the low deuterium resource that would have happened if it had been biological. And now I need to explain why that's the case because it's super fascinating. And, um, and, and I figured it out based on a paper that was written in the 1960s. So I haven't seen anything wow. since then. But I'm hanging on to that paper because it's super important. <laughs> that paper <laughs> showed that uh, they actually harvested um, – they they had gut mi- they had microbes and microbes make hydrogen gas. They they pull the hydrogens off of organic molecules and stick them together to make a hydrogen gas H two right hydrogen gas. And you get bloating in your gut because you've got gases. That's going to be hydrogen and methane and and, and hydrogen sulfide. You know all these gases that the microbes make. All of those gases are going to be low in deuterium because the hydrogen gas. What they showed in the 1960 study is that the gas that was made by these microbes. Hydrogen gas, H2, had 80% of the deuterium gone. It was down by a factor of five, 80% gone. So that becomes a really really good source of low deuterium hydrogen. And then the microbes are very careful to make sure they capture that hydrogen. Hydrogen will just escape into the air if you don't do something next, right? You've got to make the gas, and then you've got to quickly get that gas back into organic matter. And And the gut microbes do that too. So they take the hydrogen gas, they combine it with carbon dioxide, and take out the oxygen and make methane, CH4. So they can do that. They have this, and we don't have any, any uh, enzymes that can do any of this stuff. It's all based on our microbes. So they take the hydrogen gas, they turn it into methane gas. Now it's still a gas, so it can still escape, right? So then they have to very quickly turn it into something else. And they turn it into methanol. And then methanol, can, that's an alcohol. Like That's a very dangerous alcohol, right? It's like really, you know, ethanol is, is a two-carbon alcohol. Methanol is a one-carbon alcohol, CH3OH. So now it's still mm-hmm. got three good hydrogens, CH3, and the one that's missing, it's still utilizing it and capturing it in water. And then the methanol gets further processed, processed into formaldehyde and then to formate and then back into carbon dioxide in the gut microbes. And as they do that, they're dumping those H's onto NAD, NAD+. Plus. So they're making NADH. And that NADH has a golden H that's going to be 80% reduced in deuterium by virtue of having come from that hydrogen gas. It's amazing chemistry, biochemistry, and it's so crucial to the health of our body because the microbes are making, um, are, are capturing these H's that came from hydrogen gas and then pushing them around throughout the, the various oxidative re- reductive reactions and eventually handing them over to the mitochondria. And you can follow all the steps to see that that's what's happening. So there's both the NADH that's pulled off, and then there's also the methanol becomes... Um, 
methanethiol, CH3SH, which is what then is used to make methionine. Because methionine has a sulfur that's attached to a CH3. That's the methyl. And that's the universal methyl donor. So that universal methyl donor came from H2 gas, which means it's 80% depleted in deuterium in the methionine. And now that's going to become all the methylation pathways. You know, eventually it makes this uh, methyl tetrahydrofolate. So folate plays an important role as well in distributing all those methyl groups through methyl tetrahydrofolate, which comes from the methionine. And choline is a nice example because choline has a nitrogen with three methyls attached to it. NH, and <laughs> three methyls, trimethyl uh, nitrogen, <laughs> you know what I mean? Three methyls attached to a nitrogen atom in choline. And all those methyls came from methionine. So they're all going to be low in deuterium. So choline is a really good resource if it's natural. Eating wow. foods that contain choline. It's such as eggs. Meat. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Eggs and, eggs and meat. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating. And then yeah, you think and those for those who don't understand, you know, that's extremely important because that's the input to our electron transport chain and building up that mitochondrial matrix to spin the ATP synthase. So having and then, you know, both Laszlo and yourself you have talked about how the Krebs cycle is all of these steps, this little dance to really make sure that that deuterium depletion is occurring. But then when you have this, you know, really high uh, deuterium content diet from processed foods, then you're you're basically overwhelming it. So it's not going to be able to strip out enough. So and then now we're adding in the mix with glyphosate. So how does glyphosate work inner like worth with deuterium to really exacerbate the issues or exacerbate uh, your body's ability to to strip that out? How does that relationship work? Very clear. And I want to say, by the way, that Laszlo, I was so delighted. 20, uh, 2019, December 2019 was when Laszlo sent me an email message, blind email. I had, didn't know who he was. And he basically said, oh, I loved your paper. Uh, Greg Nye and I had written a paper about sulfate and about glyphosate and, and cobalamin. And we had a bunch of chem biochemistry. He loves biochemistry. He said, I loved your paper. He said, and he says, by the way, deuterium. Basically, the message was, <laughs> do you know about deuterium? And I was blown away because I, I immediately recognized how glyphosate would mess up the deuterium system. And I became completely engaged. I became obsessed on deuterium the same as I had become obsessed on glyphosate many years before. And I still am obsessed on deuterium because it's so amazing. But the deuterium... Um, glyphosate disrupts dehydrogenases. In fact, there's a study on E. coli, a nice study that uh, looked at, at what, which uh, enzymes were affected by glyphosate and suppressed. You know, it, it, it was a good study uh, in E. coli and it had a massive uh, analysis of all these enzymes, both activated and, and suppressed. There were like a dozen dehydrogenases that they listed that were suppressed by glyphosate. And succinate dehydrogenase, I mentioned earlier, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase, those are ones that have been shown in the literature uh, in, in independent literature from that particular paper, also to be uh, glyphosate suppresses those enzymes. And it's predicted to be true because they bind to, so, to phosphate at a place where glycine is highly conserved. They have that glyphosate susceptibility motif, the dehydrogenases too. And, um, and so when you uh, take that methane that you got from those beautiful hydrogens from the gas, and then you run it through this system of all those um, pulling off the hydrogens and sticking them onto NADH. Those are dehydrogenases. All of those enzymes are dehydrogenases. So they're getting messed up by glyphosate. The system's getting backed up. The methane gas is, is gathering. You're getting bloating and discomfort. And you're releasing excess methane into the air, which is going to be a, a, a climate change problem because methane is like 40 times as bad as carbon dioxide. 
as a, as a greenhouse gas. And the cows, you know, we, we talk about the cows releasing all this methane that's causing a problem. We don't, we don't want to have cows got to kill them all off, right, because of the methane. <laughs> if you would feed them organic food, they wouldn't have so much methane, and they'd be a lot healthier, and we'd be a lot healthier eating them. So I think the cows need to have an organic diet in order to improve our health and in order to improve climate change. Yeah, uh, it's it's really funny because this is a topic I've written about personally extensively. And we actually just interviewed uh, Dr. Frank Mitloner, who is one of the experts on um, greenhouse gas emissions. So I'm actually probably going to send him this because it's uh, – I don't know. Yeah, no one really talks about that. I mean, there has been definitely science that shows the life cycle analysis of feedlot beef is way more from, you know, the degradation of the soil perspective. But no one's talking about the actual – input of the GMO Roundup Ready grains being detrimental for their emissions or causing more methane to be expelled, uh, which is, yeah, then there's another reason for regenerative agriculture right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think putting the cows out on the grass makes a whole lot of sense. We can't eat grass, you know, and there's a lot of grass around in the world and the cows are very healthy food if they're eating grass, but, but not if they're eating glyphosate they're going to be all messed up and they're going to cause uh, you know additional contributions to climate change and then not be healthy their 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 meat is not going to be healthy for us so um it makes a whole lot of sense to put the cows out on the grass i think yeah and then if you just think about any other um just animal or, or meat processed foods that we're eating it's the same story really but you know, basically to summarize what you just said, and so I'm understanding it correctly, it's basically just, yeah, it, it's a, a limit or preventing our ability to effectively kind of have a deuterium depleted uh, hydrogen H pluses that are entering in our mitochondrial matrix, which is then again causing dysfunction across the board. Is, is that correct? Yeah, it's and kind I didn't of that mention upstream. that. We should have said that much earlier because um, so I hope people understand deuterium is heavy hydrogen. It's got an extra mm -hmm. a neutron, which makes it twice as heavy. And it's very common in our body, actually. It's five times as common as calcium in the blood. So it's not like it's a rare thing. It's natural. You know, it's all over the everywhere in the universe, or at least certainly on the, on the, on the earth, probably everywhere in the universe. Um, and deuterium, um, the body has come up with very clever ways of, of keeping the deuterium out of the mitochondria because deuterium messes up the ATPase pumps in the mitochondria. So those are, that's how you make the ATP, and the ATP is the energy source of the cell. And the, uh, the pumps, when they want, you have to pump hydrogen into the intramembrane space and then those protons will push out. They'll naturally come out through the ATPase pumps um, as a proton motive force. And that's what the force that gives energy to make the ATP. So it's very, very important to have those hydrogens running through those ATPase pumps. But if there's a, you know, whenever there's a deuterium, it, it, it causes a hiccup. It actually can break the pump and cause the, uh, and cause the mitochondria to release reactive oxygen species. And those are going to cause the DNA damage and all of that sort of thing. So there's a reactive oxygen popping out of the mitochondria is not good. And the more deuterium that the mitochondria have in that intermembrane space, the more they're going to produce reactive oxygen, the less they're going to produce ATP. So you're going to have both an energy shortage and a toxicity of the oxygen. Um, and that mitochondrial dysfunction is a characteristic feature of many, many different diseases, especially neurodegenerative diseases, autism, you know, Alzheimer's, all these things. Parkinson's, they're connected to mitochondrial dysfunction, which can be caused by the excess deuterium 
which can be caused by the fact that you've got the glyphosate messing up the dehydrogenases. So. Yeah, it's like this. It's like this onslaught that that we're facing, right? And there's so many things contributing to to mitochondrial dysfunction. And then again, um, what's really fascinating is the research that um, Gabor Shamalier pioneered on mm-hmm. cancer. And right. you mentioned yes. that earlier, how important um, the the process is for for cancer, and how they show that deuterium depleted diets and and water, I believe, is more so the intervention is reducing tumor growth. And yeah, that was, I, I didn't realize his book that he kind of wrote defeating cancer that, yeah, that's 20 yes, years I've ago. His and book. It's quite interesting. And it's pretty impressive. The results that he's getting. Yeah. Yeah. Just by so it, it, it's all connected, right? It's, it seems like, and because these roundup ready crops that we're growing and that we're consuming in these ultra processed foods, they're both high in glyphosate and high in deuterium. So it's almost this twofold effect in terms of affecting our biology and then severely disrupting our, our mitochondrial function. Right. Exactly. That's the critical thing that happens with the excess deuterium in the mitochondria. And the body has just become incredibly clever at uh, keeping deuterium out. And I want to say there's another aspect of that that has to do with the sulfate, uh, because the sulfate, uh, heparin sulfate lining all the blood vessels creates gelled water, and the gelled water traps deuterium. And this is Gerald Pollack's work. I don't know if you're familiar with Gerald Pollack, but he has shown that the gelled water becomes negatively charged, and it pushes protons out out of the gel and so it creates a battery and that battery becomes an energy source and when you have sunlight exposure it makes the gel grow bigger and it makes the battery stronger so that you're you're capturing the energy from the sun in the battery that's being formed by the heparin sulfate proteoglycans that line the blood vessels and so deficiency in sulfate in the heparin sulfate which is what's this you know issue in autism and i think a systemic problem in the american population is going to decrease the uh, quality of that gel because the sulfate is critical for gelling the water in the heparin sulfate. Heparin sulfate has variable amounts of sulfate in it, and the more the better as far as I can tell. But when you've got an impaired ability to transport sulfate like you do with glyphosate, the sulfate in the, in the lining of the blood becomes deficient, and that makes the blood barrier actually also ver- vulnerable to attack from whatever is circulating in the blood. It can get past the barriers better because there's not enough gel. And the gel also provides a slick layer for the um, red blood cells to slide through almost effortlessly with very little friction. So without enough gel, you don't have as much as many protons being pushed out, which is an energy problem. But you, but also that process of pushing out the protons is also doing deuterium depletion because the, the deuterium tends to stay with the gel. Deuterium stays with the ice. So when you have glacier water is low in deuterium because the, the, it stays in the ice. And then deuterium stays in the gel. So the fluid water, which is in the blood, has low deuterium because the deuterium is trapped in the gel. And the, the, the protons that come out are going to be low deuterium, and which are going to be then funneled into the cells to be used for energy. So I think it's a, the sulfate plays a critical role in trapping deuterium in the gel. And then the dehydrogenases play a critical role in delivering deuterium-depleted uh, hydrogens to the mitochondria. Both of those are being disrupted by glyphosate. Yeah, the the exclusion zone, which uh, you're you're talking about, is, is yes. yeah to me one of the best ways to be more resilient against toxins. And you talk about heparin sulfate, and that's because it's so negatively charged, right? right. It's it's uh-huh. helping build that exclusion zone up. And then we talk about the the infrared light, which has been shown to expand the exclusion zone by Pollock, you know, more so than fact, anything fact else. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three to four X. And, and then that's also interacting with uh, the mitochondria directly. But then something that's also fascinating we've talked about on this podcast is the interfascial matrix. So when you add like collagen into the mix collagen and that's, you know, amazing. serving. Hey, yeah. Did and then Glasgow we're, talk we're, about collagen? He he didn't, but we talked about it with uh, Carrie Bennett and some other folks on how that matrix is probably a really important means of of communication um, for the body, and then what disrupts you know collagen more than anything, and and that's glyphosate because of the the GXY, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, and you know what the X and Y are? They're proline, proline and hydroxyproline. Ah, are very yeah. high. So that's I want to say something about proline before we quit because I, I'm only yeah, yeah. learning about proline recently, and it's really fascinating. And it's another part of the deuterium story that's extremely important, I think. And it's interesting because proline is this unique amino acid. I talked about it before that has the side chain loops back around and hooks back onto the nitrogen, which makes it hard to break it apart. Remember, I talked about that and the enzymes that help out. But proline has some very interesting properties that are unique to proline because of this, this aspect. And one thing is that proline has two isomers. It's called cis and trans. It can switch back and forth between cis and trans. And so, so the other thing is that... Um, the, pro- the proteins that contain a lot of proline are typically structural proteins, and collagen is, is king of proline. It has tons of proline, tons of glycine. And, um, and those prolines in the collagen, they form the backbone, and the collagen forms this beautiful triple helix structure. And as it's folding in the ER, it has to sort of figure out how to fold correctly before it can be- get shipped out. And uh, first of all, the glycines are really important to be, to be able to build the triple hel- helix. So if you have a mutation in one of the glycines in collagen, you can have a very serious problem with just a single glycine that's substituted by something else. And there's a lot of different diseases that are uh, caused by genetic mutations in glycines in collagen. Uh, glyphosate is going to have a, a field day substituting for glycines in collagen. So I think we've got lots of glyphosate in our collagen. In fact, Anthony has tested collagen and jello and found it uh, heavy, uh, high levels of glyphosate in collagen-derived products. And so, um, and so the glyphosate is messing up the collagen, make, making it unable to form that triple helix structure. And that structure is what gives collagen its interesting properties in terms of its uh, tensile strength and um, ability to hold water. You know, collagen has all these interesting properties based on that structure that it forms. But the prolines play a critical role in allowing the collagen to find its its uh, it to to. to organize itself into that triple helix is happening in the in the er endoplasmic reticulum is where proteins fold collagen a third of our proteins are collagen molecules in our body we have huge amounts of collagen and the prolines they have this cis trans thing right and there's an enzyme that um that flips it back and forth between cis and trans and this enzyme is expressed in the er while the collagen molecule is trying to find its shape it's flipping back and forth between uh, cis and trans. So that makes the whole backbone jittery, right? It's kind of like stirring up the water. So I think that uh, that enzyme is really, really So like important. oscillating? Is it like yeah, oscillating? Yeah, it's basically, basically oscillating back yeah. and forth. That enzyme can increase the rate of that flipping back and forth by a factor of 10,000 compared to not wow. having that enzyme. It's a huge difference. And that enzyme is expressed in the ER and it allows the collagen to sort of find its shape. But it's not just finding its shape. What I think it's doing is it's gathering up the deuterium that's in the ER and capturing it in the proline molecules during that process of shaping the collagen molecules. So you think of a third of the molecules, a third of the proteins that are being processed in the ER are collagen. And they're going around in the water trying to grab deuterium. Every time a deuterium gets stuck onto a proline molecule, it stays there because proline does not let go. This is like just so amazing. Again, I found an article. It was a thesis from 1943. 
that showed. <laughs> I haven't Incredible. found anything since then. So I'm frustrated not to find newer literature, but it showed that when proline gets, they, they created proline that was highly concentrated in deuterium, way too much deuterium. And they found that they could uh, do acid hydrolysis for a long time, trying to get that deuterium off and it wouldn't come off. So the proline is able to capture and hold deuterium basically forever. So what's happening in the ER is that these all these collagen molecules that are being formed in the ER and they're doing their dance back and forth with this uh, cis-trans flipping is creating kinetic energy that's kind of allowing it to sh shop around in the water looking for deuterium. Every time the proline gets a deuterium, it stays. So that, that they, the, the building of the collagen molecule, the, the, the organization of the collagen molecule eventually forming the triple helix has, a set, has another role that's probably its primary role, which is to sweep the deuterium out of the ER so that all the other proteins will be low deuterium. You know, it'll help to keep the deuteriums low in, the other proteins low in deuterium, the enzymes and whatnot. Collagen's a structural protein. It captures the deuterium in the proline. It puts it into the extracellular matrix and it sits there. Collagen is pretty sturdy. It lasts a long time, uh, holding on to the deuterium that it has found in the ER so that the ER water will be low in deuterium. It's performing a service for all the other proteins to keep the deuterium away from them. I think that's extraordinary. And, and the that's, yeah, glyphosate that's in incredible. substitution by glyphosate is going to mess that up. That was what I was about to ask is, you know, then if we have this dysfunctional collagen via from gly glyphosate, then I'm assuming that would be impaired. One could theorize. Right. Yes. And, and I think it's, uh, it's very clear because people who have these mutations, as I said, a single mutation, a single glycine can cause the collagen not to be able to fold properly and end up stuck in the ER. And then you have a deficiency in collagen throughout your body and you have a lot of nasty uh, consequences of that in, in terms of symptom symptomatically for these uh, diseases. Ehlers-Danlos is one of those, Ehlers-Danlos, uh, which is going up even though it's a genetic disease, going up in prevalence because glyphosate is essentially causing um, a mutation in a sense, a pseudo-mutation yeah. by, by substituting. So it's, it's wild, it's wild stuff, but it's really, really fascinating. I think that the structural proteins and particularly collagen are playing a crucial role in gathering up all the deuterium they can find in the water inside the cell and then taking it outside and parking it in the extracellular matrix and holding it there so that it won't uh, mess things up. It seems like there's always, you know, a mechanism because again, we're not, we're not saying deuterium isn't existing. Like you're saying it's, it's very calm. Well, it's, it's, even though it's a very small percentage of all hydrogen, hydrogen yes. is the most you know, prevalent so common, um, even a small molecule in, is a lot. Yeah, in the universe. Right. So mm -hmm. um, we're talking, there's a lot of deuterium in our biology and, and that, and that makes sense. And there always is a reason for that. And maybe that extra mass and that ability to, you know, have that force is, is useful for collagen, but something I think about, and I'm curious a, a, a little bit going back to the seventies here is uh, yeah. Collagen being proven as an N type semiconductor by Robert O. Becker. So how, do you, have you thought about how that might be affected I from, need to, from, I need to learn from glyphosate? About you, you need oh, to send okay. me something on that because I don't know about that. It sounds really interesting. Yeah. So yeah. Robert O. Becker um, kind of pioneered, I guess, some of the bio. Oh, he was an orthopedic surgeon and, and some of the bioelectric research. He basically proved that bone was made up of apatite and uh, collagen, which were an, a P-type and then an N-type semiconductor. And they're basically forming a diode in the bone. 
So he, he proved that proteins um, are kind of semiconductors, which St. Georgie theorized uh, quite oh, yes. long uh-huh. ago. And then, yeah, that's where we get into all this stuff where it's connected with water, you know, making that water battery from Pollock's work and having that intracellular matrix potentially be, you know, one of the biggest areas of, of semiconduction in the body. So I think about um, glyphosate disrupting that completely. And then I also think about electromagnetic fields because they for sure have probably the most impact on the water molecule because if yeah. you think about how just uh, a microwave works and, and jostling water molecules, changing their, their frequency of oscillation and pretty much breaking it. And Pollock uh, hasn't confirmed this in research, but I think he stated that um, – very detrimental for the exclusion zone as well. But I know you wrote at the end of your book, and just because you're an electrical engineer, biophysics background, I'm curious on how you consider EMFs as, as a part of this environmental toxin. Yeah, I mentioned them slew. just briefly at the end of my book, and I do agree that the EMFs are a big part of the problem, and we, we're not we're just blindly going forward. You know, it, with 5G, I mean, it's just going to be amazing to see what happens in the future with this. Uh, ever-increasing exposure that you absolutely cannot get away from. If you live in the United States, you pretty much can't find any place to go that will keep you away from these uh, exposures. And, uh, and of course, people with their cell phones in their pockets and messing up their um, sperm and things like that. So it's going to be... Uh, it's going to be a race between the EMFs and the glyphosate as far as which one gets to us first, but I think they're going to collaborate. Well, I think, it, take I think it's all, yeah, exactly. It's all syner- synergistically negatively affecting our, our biology, right? And then that's yeah. how you couple in the deuterium as well. And at the end of the day, then mitochondrial dysfunction and then the communication and in terms of the collagen and protection from the EZ is mm-hmm. we're just failing on, on many levels, I, I see. But do you think from the deuterium side of things that there's a there's a role for for maybe having higher levels of deuterium? Because I think about it's just from like a context perspective in the mountains, um, kind of in colder climates, deuterium is lower, um, whereas uh, and then in those same areas, people would never have had access to meat or sorry, produce. They only have access to meat, which is lower and lowest in deuterium. And again, we talked about that at length with Laszlo is the best way to have a deuterium depleted diet is, is eating kind of pasture-raised grass-fed meats and then mm-hmm. um, probably some produce that is, is grown locally and not sprayed with, with glyphosate. That deuterium might have a context in higher light environments. And this is something, you know, Jack Cruz theorizes on quite a bit is that there might be a use case for deuterium in really strong UV, for example. And I'm curious if you thought about a that benefit, at all. You I, I know or, you're, yeah, or just a role really not yeah. to being slightly higher or something like that in well, terms I, of I, It's all a matter of being able to put the deuterium where it needs to go. And in fact, the collagen yeah. is really interesting because I think Glasgow probably talked about the seals. Did he talk about the seals? I don't think so, actually. Oh, okay. I'm surprised because that's something he shared with me. And it was a really cool paper about seals. And they found out that the seals had um, very high deuterium in the proline in their bones, in the mm. collagen. They had trapped lots of deuterium, uh, you know, double, uh, double the amount of deuterium as is normally found. They concentrated deuterium in their bones. And then they were theorizing that that's what made their bones really strong so that they could handle yep. deep dives because they have all that pressure at, at, at deep yep. dives. They need to have really strong bones. So they were able to really put a lot of deuterium into their collagen in their bones. And I think that uh, collagen, when it gets enough deuterium, it changes its structure to actually become very compressed because the deuterium is going to change the whole biophysical aspects with this extra 
weight, this extra neutron, um, it, it, ho- it holds, it, it attaches more strongly to things that it binds to and is less willing to share, you know, um, ionic bonds. It has weaker ionic bonds and stronger covalent bonds. So the deuterium sort of makes the whole molecule stronger um, in order to, to ha- handle that high pressure at depth. Um, but I think all of us are pushing more deuterium into our bones uh, compared to elsewhere in the collagen, in the bones, and that the deuterium actually causes the collagen to collapse and let go of the water. And, and you see actually uh, interesting effects of, um, well, this gets into <laughs> detail again, but polyphosphate is a very interesting molecule that I've been looking at recently. And when the platelets get activated, they release polyphosphate. And polyphosphate actually turns off. It, it disables the enzymes that cause the, uh, the jittering of the, um, the cis-trans you know, jittering of the uh, proline. So that causes the molecule to become quiet instead of energetic. Mm. And then I think that triggers a reaction that can cause it to collapse down and lose the water and become bone. And I think that's what's happening in the arteries when we have hardening of the arteries. But platelet activation, phosphate, polyphosphate, disabling that, that enzyme, causing the collagen to then collapse into bone in the artery, become bone-like. Um, so I think, and, and that's, of course, a disease condition, but I think normal bone develops properly when it gets enough deuterium. And that's a way to sequester the deuterium in the bone because that's where you want to just hide it there so that it's kept away from the mitochondria. So that all makes a lot of sense. It's using the deuterium positively where it can be beneficial and making it less deuterium where it can be damaging. Yeah, I, th- I think to me that's, all I didn't know anything about the the bone perspective. That's it, it makes total sense because you know deuterium has this high force and that really strong bonding. Or I guess in the covalent perspective, but yeah, which makes it in, stronger as a molecule. Yeah, yeah. So in the bone, that that makes total sense, and and that's really cool. I'll, I guess I'll have to look into that seal paper. That's fascinating, but it's it's nothing that's being done by mistake, right? Like our biology is is very clever and uh, it's only recently when we've altered all of these inputs, whether it's from, you know, the food, these toxins that never existed, the light being different or circadian rhythms being disrupted, um, gut being disrupted from glyphosate and everything in our environment that now it's, yeah, it's being messed up. So we're not able to place things where they are or, put things in um, a manner that are effective for the environment. And that environment might be a little different depending on where you live, of course, or your heritage. So yeah, it all makes total sense. But digging into the science of it is is really fascinating because then we can maybe think of ways to combat that. But I guess, uh, yeah, on the forefront of your deuterium research, uh, what what are you most excited about or or what's coming next uh, in terms of is this the main area of focus still for you for, for the coming couple of years? I think so. I, the more I read about deuterium, the more interested I get because it's just so fascinating and so many different aspects uh, of biology can be explained. I didn't even, I couldn't figure out why glycolysis needed to be so complicated. You know, <laughs> the anaerobic part of what happens with the glucose yeah. to turn it into pyruvate. Um, so many steps. And maybe Laszlo talked about that because he's, he's an expert on that, that process. But all those isomerases, you know, and uh, even the adding phosphate, taking it off. I mean, all these things that sort of do things back and forth, um, they're, they're all probably involved in deuterium in one way or another. The isomerases are really interesting because they're able to, there's an isomerase in the glycolysis that ends up um, making sure when you move forward that it's hydrogen, not deuterium, that goes into the p- further processing. So they're shedding the deuterium 
in the water, in the cytoplasm, uh, and creating a, a product that's going to be low in deuterium through glycolysis. And so all of a sudden, the complexity of certain processes makes a whole lot more sense um, because of, um, of the issue of trying to get rid of the deuterium. Got it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, when I first was trying to understand the Krebs cycle and glycolysis uh, with no biology background, it's pretty overwhelming. But then, yeah, you, you look into this and you realize that it all, it all is for a reason. And then, yeah, if you can bypass all of these steps by eating a, you know, a fat, high fat diet um, that's deuterium depleted, you're, you're giving your body a, a fighting chance. So it's, it's funny to think about mainstream trends that are ongoing um, and why they might be more beneficial that for reasons that really nobody is, is talking about. And being on the frontier of, of research like this is, is really exciting for me because we're, we're still putting so many puzzle pieces together. And yes. it's, it's crazy the, that a puzzle. <laughs> yeah. And you see, all puzzles. you've <laughs> seemed to, you seem to be one of the, the best at that for sure. And it's yeah. like, you really have to go back to, you know, I mean, you're talking what 70 years, some of this research is just to get a clue. And yes. That seems to be a problem. I guess in general as well, something I ask a lot of researchers is, do you see this as being like a, a hurdle in general for the research academia community in order to want to study things like deuterium, things that aren't really going to yield a, a profitable maybe product at the end of the day? Well, I find it very frustrating that people seem to resist uh, new ideas in biology. They're kind of that stuck well. in a stovepipe. And, and, you know, of course, the industry is always focused on how can I make a drug that's going to solve this problem? Yeah. They're always looking for a drug. Um, but they're not really um, willing to think outside of the box. They've created a box that's extremely incomplete and critically missing certain aspects of biology that absolutely need to be addressed in order to understand what's going on. And then they're creating these drugs that are actually counterproductive. And they don't know that because they don't understand the underlying biology as to why it would be that this is a bad idea, you know. And um, so I think that the uh, pharmaceutical industry is in a mess right now. I, they, I don't think they're going to be, I don't know how they're going to dig themselves out of this hole because I think that the drugs that they're producing are, um, are counter-effective, you know, and, um, and they don't understand the biology well enough to know what they're doing. And uh, so they, they get misguided because they, they, they think too simplistically. Mm-hmm. And they think if I just yeah. poison this enzyme, then I can solve all the problems. But then that, that enzyme is actually doing something important. They don't realize that what it's doing because they don't understand it, you know? Yeah, I think it's a simplistic mindset approach for sure that's hyper-focused on, yeah, profitization at the end of the day. And, yeah, the whole centralized system is just really not set up for, for people to get better in because they're not addressing any root cause um, issues of – their toxic environment or their lifestyle habits. So we're giving our bodies all the wrong inputs, layering in toxins from our environment. So you really have to be deliberate and almost, yeah, a part-time researcher yourself to, to understand it. So I'm asking all the researchers because I'm concerned that the funding and, and just motivation to research probably the more important topics are going to go by the wayside. So yeah, it's inspiring it's to see to what you're doing. Publish. Yeah. Hard to publish yeah. in this space because there's there's so little background that they have to be able to understand what you're saying. And there's not enough room in one paper to cover the whole story. You know, it's like you kind of can't can't introduce it because nobody knows the context in which to understand what you're saying. And so it's very frustrating to uh, to get it out into the research literature. I, I'm looking forward to a time when more and more people are aware of deuterium, and part of, that's part of your service in providing things like mm-hmm. this this interview. 
um, to help people become aware of the importance of deuterium and then uh, hopefully eventually get it back to the research literature so they can become aware and they can do the proper research to figure out what's going on. Yeah, and and that's what it's all about, and that's why I think it's we we are getting some momentum behind the education. Like it's more and more popular; it's being discussed more. But in general, yeah, we need to almost inspire researchers, you know, scientists who want to, you know, be on the. I mean, if I was a researcher, you know, coming out of school, for example, I would want to research things that are on the frontier. But then yes. they run into so many hurdles, and then there's a lot of bureaucracy in terms of career aspirations that right. they become quickly dismayed on on doing that. So hopefully we can build enough momentum to overcome these hurdles in the right. academia and just research in general. Yes, that would be great if we could reach a point where the mainstream recognizes that this is an important research topic that needs to be pursued. Well, fantastic. Stephanie, thank you so much for your time. Um, if people want to learn more about your work, your research, um, we mentioned your book, Toxic Legacy. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend checking that out. Uh, where else can they find you besides typing in a you know Google Scholar search of your name? <laughs> yeah, Google Scholar search will be helpful. Um, StephanieSetup.net is my webpage. I have some um, links to some interesting, uh, some articles and, and interviews and whatnot there, StephanieSetup.net. And they also have an MIT webpage, which is more complicated, but it uh, it has a tremendous amount of stuff on it. All, most of my papers, recent papers, are available there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, and thanks for your work and contributing to this. Yeah, really important space of of science, and yeah, kind of putting your your reputation on the line to call out um, the industry of you know big ag, big pharmaceuticals, and. It's really important, and I think it's uh, going to be something that changes a lot of people's lives and shifting the direction and in, in our momentum uh, in a positive way. So thanks so Thank much you. again, and we'll definitely have to keep a discourse going as well. Yes, that'd be great. Thank you. Thanks, Stephanie.